to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to create positive relationships with students and families in a kindergarten class for English language learners. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Mandy Young of Skokie, Illinois. Mandy Young is a vibrant, passionate, and caring teacher who, for the past 12 years, has been teaching ELL, English Language Learner, kindergarten. Mandy is also the first guest to ask to play a game with me. Are you familiar with the N activity? I'm not. What is it? Can you tell me what you did this past weekend, but you can't use any words that contain the letter N? Okay. Hey. The funny thing is, I don't think my weekend is any different than my weekdays. But <laughs> okay, so your weekday this morning. <laughs> I ate my breakfast and my dog ate. You can't say and because it is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, my dog also ate her breakfast of kibble. Mm-hmm. I had social away from <laughs> coffee with my can't say neighbor house friend. <laughs> friend. Okay, I love doing this activity. Like if I do if I'm like doing a PD or a workshop or whatever, I love doing this because then we reflect back on like what that felt like. So it's like, you know, what did you feel like? Yeah, I, it was definitely frustrating. I found myself second guessing Mm -hmm. what I was going to say, even though I had a very clear picture in my head, I was unable to communicate Mm -hmm. at the level of sophistication that, Mm -hmm. that I wanted to. It really shows. And, you know, you're educated, like you're an adult and you probably have a vast vocabulary, but it's still, it was still disfluent or like you were, you know, trying to explain something because you couldn't like, you're like groping for vocabulary. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't say that one word because it had the letter N in it. And it's like, that was for less than a minute. Imagine what our English language learners are doing all day long. And that's just so taxing and exhausting and your brain is exhausted and they're five and they have a 20 minute recess. And it's like, oh, I just can't. So thank you for indulging me in that. (laughs) So if uh, (laughs) how much my brain hurts after doing that for a few seconds is any indication, um, There is clearly a need for EL kindergarten, Uh, though to be honest, this is really the first time that I've heard of this type of model. So do you mind just telling us how you ended up teaching this class, what it looks like? 
so I, I'm going to backtrack a little. I started um, my position in the district as a ESL resource teacher for kindergarten and first grade. Um, and so I did that for about eight years. And then at that time, it was becoming a, a little bit of a trend to start these sheltered EL classes. But then, um, you know, some people didn't understand what that meant. Um, I also didn't know either, and I had to get educated myself because some people think of a sheltered EL classroom as like a very restrictive um, instructional type of a classroom, like a special ed old school model. But the whole point of having a sheltered EL classroom is instruction is in English, but it's broken down even more and so that it's more comprehensible and the students are able to access the information. So why we even started this was when I was a resource teacher, I noticed that, you know, my students were the ones that were not raising their hand in a big classroom of 24 other students, or the information was just like going above their heads and they weren't um, given many opportunities for practice because for a lot of them, this is all new for them and they might need more than one or two or three times to do it. Um, the classroom wasn't set up to provide those opportunities. So um, my former principal and I um, went to go observe a lot of different um, sheltered programs that were kind of popping up in my area. And so we decided to pilot this program. And so we did. And then we found that it was really successful. So we expanded it to first grade. So the first couple of years, we were like, okay, so they get the sheltered EL program, and then they go to first grade, and it's like, good luck, you know? So we expanded to first grade. And then there was even discussion of expanding it to second grade, but maybe doing it as a half day instead of a full day. But we really found that for the most part, the students were integrating, or I shouldn't even use that word because I don't want to mix it up with special ed, but they were like transitioning into the regular gen ed without full EL support um, more easily than we had thought. So we didn't think there really needed to be a second grade position, but there are ESL teachers, even in kindergarten, that still help the students that are more fluent or proficient. So they get K sheltered first if they qualified. Um, and if they don't, they still get EL support if they qualify for EL resource. So do parents decide if their child is placed into your class or um, does the district decide who needs it? So for the state of Illinois, when students register for school, one of the forms that is in their registration packet is a home language form. So the home language form asks questions um, not only about the student, but also about the family. Is there another native language spoken in your house? How much do you speak it? You know, does your child speak it? Does your um, child understand it? So even if the child doesn't speak it because we know that impacts what they hear at home, they get a flag to have a language screener. And so in the state of Illinois, that's how we identify students that get the screener is through the registration packet and the home language survey. But also um, my students or most of the students in my district, when we say they're English language learners, most of them were born in the States and um, 
they've had exposure to English their whole lives. It's just that most of them have great social language and just like everyday kind of talk, but they need support in academic language. And so the social language part, for the most part, is already there. It's more of the academic support that they're getting. What was your path to becoming a teacher? So, okay, this is really a fun story, actually. uh, So I was born in South Korea. So my brother and I happen to have the same birthdays, but he's three years older than I am. My parents did not plan it, but that's how it was. So when my parents decided that we were going to come to the States, they decided to come on my brother and my birthday and said, we're going to give you the gift of education. (laughs) And so on my eighth birthday and my brother's 11th birthday, we left Korea And then because of the time zone difference, we actually arrived in America on our birthday too. So, and I didn't know a word of English. I didn't even know how to say hi. Um, So here I was. And also um, we settled in um, Brown Deer, Wisconsin, which is a first suburb north of Milwaukee, which is not diverse at all. So at that time, and that was in 1980. So at that time, they didn't have ESL programs or bilingual. I mean, they didn't really have a lot of minorities, actually. So um, I was also in the middle of my second grade in Korea. But because I was like this little girl and they thought it would be best for me to start learning English from the beginning, they put me in kindergarten. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, you know, no one really knew at that time, like, you know, these like models of like sink or swim or EL support or whatever. They were just like, oh, she's little. And why doesn't she just start from the beginning and start in kindergarten? You know, no one knew. And so that's what I did. Um, But luckily, I like to talk, right? (laughs) So I acquired enough English by the end of my first grade to skip second grade. So I wasn't two grades behind anymore. I was only one grade behind, which is actually really good. Otherwise, I really think I could have driven in eighth grade, like a 16-year-old in eighth grade. But like living in the States as an immigrant, like I didn't know, but my parents were really, really strict. And I was, of course, very close to my parents. I had good friends. But when I went to college, I was like, oh, my goodness, freedom. (laughs) I went to UW-Madison in Wisconsin, which is known to be a very big party school. And it's huge. And so once I got there, (laughs) I was like, freedom, but not only about the freedom, but it was also about identity. Because like I said, I grew up in Wisconsin and, you know, I had great teachers and I had great friends. And I thought I was like living the typical American dream life, you know, like that my parents intended on giving me. But when I went to college, I think I really realized like, Oh, I actually, I'm a little different. Like I look different. My experiences are different. And like, also because, you know, my parents were strict. I also kind of rebelled and did my own thing. So I ended up getting kicked out of school. (gasps) Can you imagine? It was so horrible. So I ended up getting kicked out of school at at UW-Madison. 
And I knew that my parents would like make me come back home. So I signed a lease with my friends and I was like obligated to pay $300 a month, which was a lot of money back then. Um, And so my parents were like, okay, good luck, you know, figure out what you want to do and we're not helping you. So good luck to you. So that's what I did for two years. I just worked and I like got, you know, all my rebellious things out of the way. And then when I was going to go back to school, applied to the early childhood education program. But remember, I said I got kicked out of school. So my grades are really, really, really bad. And then, um, but I wrote this like letter explaining what it was like to grow up as an Asian American in a predominantly American, Caucasian, you know, majority um, area and the challenges that I found. And I also felt like another thing that factored into me wanting to be a teacher is that I feel like a lot of people that go into education were good students, you know, so they had success in school and they liked school. And it's not that I didn't like school, but I also struggled, you know, like I didn't know a word of English. And I remember even in high school, like I hated doing group work and, and even my experience in college, it's not that I didn't do well because I wasn't capable. It's because of all the other stuff. You know, we talk about SEL all the time and I just felt like I could bring something to education with my experiences. So I wrote this letter and I got accepted. I was like, well, I guess it's meant to be. And so that's how I got into it. Teaching the sheltered ELL model, what are things that you've had the most success with? And what are areas that you've struggled with? Well, I would say um, the area that I had the most success with is connecting with students and families. So I think... um, you know, people know that it is really challenging to have um, certain populations of families to be more engaged at school, whether, you know, if they're working families or if they're from a different like socioeconomic background, if they're not able to. But I think another another population is the English language learner population. It's really hard to get them involved. And I think what I do really well is I connect with people on um, a very basic level. Like, I'm a person, you're a person. You know, I'm a mom, you're a mom. We want the best for our kids. So I really make a point to just, like, talk to my students' parents on a personal level. And I, I think the thing, like... And I've been called out on it many times being like, Mandy, that's not professional. Like, you can't drive those kids home or like, you can't ask that parent that. And I was like, you know, that's an American culture like background because in a lot of other cultures that are more relational or like if they're more like a collectivism kind of a society and not an individualistic society, you need to build those connections and make them feel comfortable. And people say that all the time, but I don't think that they really devote time to get to know their family. So like right now during this remote learning, I can tell you that 13 out of my 17 families are laid off. I can tell you that two out of the 17 of my families, their moms are nurses and they were a mask. Like I know these like things about them that I feel like make the parents feel more comfortable. And so even if 
you know, it's like curriculum night or something that they don't understand. They're more open to coming because they know like we have a relationship. Are you building these relationships like the day that the kids walk in? Is it your goal to build connections with their families from like the first interaction? Just like how I was with you, they all think I'm nuts. Like they think I'm nuts. And I'm like, I hug, I mean, well, with certain cultures, I know I'm not supposed to hug them, especially if they're of the other gender. But like, I, from day one, I just like asked them, like, how are you? How long have you been in the States? Like, you know, like how many kids do you have? Just whatever it is. And then we have some opportunities where parents have visitation days where it's like a smaller group or curriculum night. And I always like, play like some kind of a fun icebreaker game, whether it's like, you know, that game, where do you stand? It's like coffee or tea, winter or summer, you know, like just kind of fun getting to know you kinds of things before I have to talk about curriculum or whatever it is. Um, And I always make their kids the center of our conversations because, you know, I hear from some of my like um, colleagues and not because they have any ill intent, but I don't think they know, like some families might be working three jobs. They might not have a car. They might be in a, like a two bedroom place with like 10 people. Like they don't know, you know? And so sometimes I hear them saying like, blah, 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 didn't come to conferences or blah, 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 didn't do this, blah, 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 didn't do that. And I was like, you know what, what parent doesn't want the best for their kid? Every parent wants the best for their kids, you know? And so like, what we think is the norm might not be the norm for them, or they just not might not have the, they just might not be able to um, help in the way that we would want them to. So like, it's never with like a negative lens, but just like, and also like a lot of cultures really respect educators and they're like, oh, the teacher knows everything. They're going to do their job. I'm so glad that they're there, you know? So building relationships, I think, is a strong point of mine. And that's the same with the students. Like, um, I actually had a really hard time getting pregnant, and it took me seven years to have my son. And I just feel like, you know, even with the kids, like from day one, you know, certain, certain kids need more love. You know, certain kids need more structure. Certain kids need you know, praise. Certain kids need consequences. Oh, why I was saying that about my son is that after I became a mom, before I became a mom, I think I was just like too permissive as a teacher. And I I think a lot of teachers struggle with that with class management. Um, When I was student teaching, um, there were some students that were homeless that I was working with. And like, they could do no wrong in my eyes. You know what I mean? Like they would throw a tantrum and I'm like oh of course you're throwing a tantrum poor kid like you're five and you're struggling with this but then as I was going through my profession and I became a mom I'm like no actually like kids need boundaries they need structure they need consistency they they need to know you love them but that doesn't mean you're like permissive about everything you know and what would be a struggle think because I'm a very like emotional person you know when all this data driven kinds of things happen I was like oh what's data when like kids are not numbers what are they talking about but I'm finding that it can be valuable and it is important to know information in that regard too and that is something I 
work at. And that is a challenge to me because that's not my inclination. That's not my nature to be like data driven and looking at graphs and like looking at assessments and things like that. So like that is an area that I need to keep working on. I guess another challenge is that my team is a very strong team and we have six kindergarten teachers. We have our curriculum all paced out. We have all of our lessons, our units, but I can't do it the way that is planned out, which I've participated in doing that, but there's no way that that would work for my students or it wouldn't work well. So another challenge is to always like find what my team is doing, what the common core or expectation is for my grade level, and then differentiating it to meet the needs of my students. So for example, for e-learning, when this first came out, I think like the popular thing was everyone was doing choice boards. So it's like, you know, reading, here's a choice board and like 10,000 ideas. I'm just kidding. It wasn't 10,000, maybe five, (laughs) but like writing, choice board, here's some ideas. And they were fantastic ideas and great ideas. But I was just, again, looking at it from the perspective of an EL parent. And I was like, it was just so overwhelming. First of all, it was a lot of information to read through in a language that might not be your first language and just having all those choices. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but making Play-Doh at home, like, I don't know what cream of tartar is, but I'm sure that a lot of my families don't have that laying around their home either. You know what I mean? So it's like, just things like that, like people mean so well, like line up the Cheerios on this line. I'm like, not all families have Cheerios or, or Fruit Loops. You know what? Like they might have lentil seeds. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Uh, but right away, I think like day three, I was like, nah, I'm not doing these choice boards. <laughs> this is just too much. And so I just thought for EL parents, like the best way is that I'm just going to assign work for them. Like reading, do this, this day. Writing, do this, this day. Math, do this, do this. You know, like for physical exercise, do this this day. So like, that's what I had decided upon. And then some students are doing harder work or some students still need more practice with basic word work. So with those families, I'm just sending it separately, but not within the main core packet. Um, And also what I do differently probably than other teachers is I make a lot of videos The videos can be either updating parents on e-learning. You know, they get an email from the district that's like two pages long with like five different links. And so I try to consolidate that information into just like the key points and then make it in a video. I also use non-traditional platforms to kind of communicate and connect with my families. I I know I'm not supposed to give them my cell phone number, but I do. And we FaceTime and they text me their children's work instead of uploading it onto Seesaw or emailing it to me because some families don't use Seesaw and some families don't do email. So I gave them my cell phone number. So they text me their child's work and then I upload it. So I have maybe two students that are not participating, which is, you know, actually like really amazing that the parents are doing that because like I said, you know, many of them um, 
don't have jobs that they could work remotely from. So they're laid off right now and they're trying to figure out how to pay rent and how to, you know, get food on the table. And then they're sitting here trying to like work with their kids. So they're doing great. And um, my teammates are teaching some new content, but I, I decided I was not going to do that. I didn't think that was equitable. I didn't think that was fair to ask that much of parents. So what I've been doing is just continuing to give them additional practice and skills that I know they haven't mastered yet. I agree with you. I, I, I think that this idea that we need to replicate real school through distance education and giving kids new skills to learn and a lot of work to recreate the actual day. I, I, I agree. I don't think it's equitable and I, I just don't think it's fair. Some of the pressure is like self-induced, you know, like we put so much pressure on ourselves and it's like, they're going to be fine. We're all going to be fine. If they don't learn, you know, pushes and pulls right now or three-dimensional shapes, I think it'll be okay. But like how, like this is like traumatizing, you know, like the kids just like being at home every day, not having, like, I don't know what's happening, but I think that's more important, you know, and that's why I'm trying to do like more fun things when I do morning meeting or like I always, in addition to my daily work, I send like extra activities they can do. And like, I also sent my students a care package with some items that can be used for fun and for learning. So I sent them Play-Doh and stencils and water paint and foamy dice and like those are things that they can use for fun as well as for learning. And so I send like parents just like activities or ideas that they can do with some of those things. Cause I don't know if they have that at home, you know? So like, I'm not going to assume and now I know they have it. So if you had unlimited school funds, full control, unlimited time, what would your ideal classroom or school look like? I would definitely have it be more experiential and hands-on engaging and doing and not just being you know, talked at or taught that way. I would also incorporate a lot of like family things. Um, but when I say family things, it's not like the school dictates, you know, come, you know, on this day so I can talk at you about what our curriculum is or like come to school on this day so I can talk at you about assessment, but more like collaborative, you know, like exchanging ideas or like sharing ideas or sharing strengths like us learning from them and them learning from us like oh one year I had like several students um who were Assyrian and at the end of the year we always have like a little full graduation and this mom I mean she was just like like me except in Assyrian and so then I had like four Assyrian families and they all made dolmas. And then this mom gets up and she's like, Miss Young, she's like, you tell us which is the best dolma. And so we had like a test during graduation. And I'm like, and like those kinds of things, I just think is just so valuable. Oh, oh, and I also had like these once a month, like um, parent activity days and that one we actually wrote a grant and had funding but you know and each month was a different theme one could have been technology one's like board games and you know people are always like play board games with your kids and like to EL families sometimes you're like what does that mean like I never played a board game with my parents in my whole entire life you know 
we had board game night and we raffled it off. But one of the um, one of the uh, themes was um, like large motor games. And so I had all these like Muslim moms in their clothes and they were all covered up and we played dodgeball, like parents against the kids. And those moms were so awesome. And I think it just showed the kids like a different side of their parent, you know, like they were awesome and they were like great at running and throwing balls at their kids and whatever. In my ideal world, I would also incorporate more like family kinds of things like that, you know? Yeah, just I want to thank you for being willing to share and, and talk about your practice during a very different and somewhat distressing time. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share my experiences. I think it's amazing what you're doing um, for educators also so that we can connect in different ways. Um, so I really appreciate it. There you have it, Mandy Yom with Adapting Kindergarten for ELL, creating strong connections to families, and why getting kicked out of school can actually be a good thing in hindsight. If you want to find out more about what innovative educators are doing around the world, go to LessonImpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider forwarding it to your colleagues and rating and reviewing it on iTunes. This has been Lesson Impossible. And I was your host, Aviva Levin.